You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Ottawa, 1930. There were footsteps in the hallway, muffled voices growing louder. A jingle of keys, a heavy clunk of a metal bolt, the creak of a door, and a yellow wedge of light slanted through the room, framing two silhouettes. A shadow moved. There was a click of a switch, and the entire room flooded with light, cinching the silhouettes to pale pools on the floor. Dust motes floated softly, then reeled and twirled as the figures pushed past shelves of rolled canvas, metal filing cabinets, and rows of paintings slotted between wooden panels, tips of fingers and trees and bayonets creeping from their corners toward the light. Stacks of wooden crates sat in the center of the room, and the two figures moved among them, searching, scanning every mark as incandescent bulbs buzzed softly overhead. Finally, they found it, a thin crate roughly two feet wide by three feet high. Item 186 in the Canadian War Memorials Exhibition Catalog. A hand brushed away a thin layer of dust. Thick fingers tapped the top, then gripped and slid the crate onto a hand truck. The crate groaned and squeaked as the truck's noseplate lifted and pushed toward the door. Wait, a voice said. There are photographs, too. The second figure moved to the filing cabinet, riffled through, and pulled a folder from the drawer. There was a moment of confirmation before the drawer clanked shut and the voice came again. This is all of it. Let's go. They pushed the crate across the floor of the silent gallery, out the doors, and into the back of a waiting truck. The photographs were tucked neatly by its side. The contents of the crate, along with the photographic evidence of its existence, were bound for an unknown location. A warehouse, somewhere on the outskirts of Ottawa. Long-term storage for Canada's unwanted art and artifacts. And there they would remain for decades, mostly forgotten, entirely out of the public eye. A de facto government ban on exhibition and even photography, as authorities debated whether that was enough, whether the entire thing should be destroyed. So what was inside? What object that could fit within a two-foot by three-foot crate could cause a government such consternation and require such secrecy? It wasn't a weapon, at least by the conventional definition. It was a sculpture, a work of art cast in bronze. Harmless enough, except for the subject. The sculpture was a depiction of a story. A story that, to most politicians and historians, was nothing more than a myth, but potentially a dangerous one. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, a tale from the trenches of World War I, and the story of how it provoked shock, anger, and later, embarrassment amongst Canadians of the early 20th century. As the subject of propaganda, it encouraged hatred for the enemy, incited men to war, and inspired in some Canadian soldiers a fabled ruthlessness and brutality on the battlefield. As the subject of art and national myth, it prompted an international scandal and an act of government censorship that lasted for over 60 years. As a story, it created a mystery that still captivates people and remains unsolved to this day. Taken as a whole, it's a legend that inspires us to consider the difference between persuasion and expression, truth and fact, myth 
and memory. This is the legend of the crucified Canadian. A quick note before I begin. This episode is about propaganda, alleged wartime atrocities, and the realities of war. It may not be suitable for some listeners, and discretion is advised. Part 1. A Crucifixion Pepper and pineapple. The sickly scent was still overwhelming, along with the bitter, metallic tang that coated his mouth. The private rubbed his face with blackened fingers. His throat stung and his eyes watered. The gas attack had been devastating. A pale green phantom had glided across the battlefield and choked the life from the men in the trenches. He had watched his friends, men he had trained with for six months, drop to the mud in a convulsing mass. He had been lucky, had heard the shouts of warning over the gunfire, had plunged a scrap of fabric into a sickly yellow puddle, had held that filth to his mouth as the cloud rolled in, as his eyes burned and vision blurred, as the enemy advanced, as he followed the call to retreat. Somehow he had lost the others and wound up here, wherever here was. A lonely road and a torn-up meadow full of dead cattle and abandoned machinery. Mud and blood and rust. There was a barn at the edge of the field fifty yards away, and he carefully made his way toward it, using the ditch and twilight shadows for cover. He would rest inside the shelter, wait until well after dark, then make his way back to the front. Within thirty feet he found more bodies, human this time. Canadian, mostly, lying contorted in the ditch. Heavy artillery boomed as he approached, and, as the last echoes fell, he could hear voices nearby. He crept closer. They were men's voices, confident enough to rise over the pulsing of the distant guns. And they were speaking not English, not French or Dutch either. That left one option, and he didn't like it. His fingers tightened around his rifle. Stepping around the bodies of fallen soldiers, he moved to where the ditch met a crumbling wall and peered over. Six German soldiers were gathered near the barn door, rifles hanging from their shoulders. One of them laughed. Another drew the last of a cigarette and flicked it toward the stone wall. It landed near the private's left boot, and he instinctively drew in his leg, sending a small landslide of rubble into the ditch. The soldiers fell silent. He stiffened, faced the meadow, and drew his rifle to his chest, then slid halfway into the ditch and played dead. He held his breath and listened. Footsteps getting closer, and the sound of a rifle being readied. The German's heavy boots stopped at the edge of the wall. An urge to cough built in the private's chest, and he winced and focused on the glowing cherry of the cigarette and imagined it was the corruption in his lungs. He watched it slowly fade knowing that the soldier was likely watching it too. Rifle fire cracked across the sky. One of the soldiers called to the others, and the group moved on. The private sat in silence for as long as he was able. Then, when he couldn't contain it any longer, coughed and wheezed into the crook of his arm. He scrambled to the wall and peered carefully over to see five figures shrinking on the horizon. He froze. He remembered counting six. 
Slowly, he turned his head to where the soldiers had been standing, and a sense of dread clawed through his stomach. He wasn't alone. One soldier still remained. He was in profile, leaning against the barn door and gazing out across the road, still and silent. The private watched the soldier warily. He couldn't risk a rifle shot with the others nearby, but a bayonet or a knife would do just as well. He'd make his move once the soldier moved, once his back was exposed. He decided to make his way to the side of the barn and wait for his opportunity. The private inched closer, but as his eyes adjusted to the gloom, he noticed something strange. The soldier wore no ammunition belt, no suspenders over his shoulders. Nor was his tunic the typical grey, streamlined design he had seen on other German soldiers. This man's clothes seemed brighter in the fading light, and had two large breast pockets. The private realized it wasn't a German uniform at all. It was Canadian. But if that was a Canadian soldier, why had the Germans left him standing? He crept around the crumbling wall and pointed his rifle at the soldier. No response. He drew closer, and a feeling of abject terror washed over him. He saw now that the soldier was not leaning against the barn. He was suspended 18 inches off the ground. His head was slumped forward, his body riddled with bullets and slashes from enemy blades. His arms were fully extended and pinned to the door, a bayonet shoved through each wrist. Two others pierced his feet, and a fifth, his throat. Blood trailed the edge and pooled in the dirt. The Canadian soldier, a sergeant according to the patch on his sleeve, had been crucified. Part 2. The Birth of a Myth What you just heard is a dramatization of just one of the many versions of the crucified Canadian, or the crucified soldier, an atrocity story that first made its way through the front lines and headlines in the spring of 1915. The crucifixion was said to have happened between April 22nd and April 24th of that year, during the Second Battle of Ypres. It was the first major Canadian battle of the Great War, and according to author Tim Cook's fantastic book At the Sharp End, it was a battle in which, through remarkable endurance, improvisation, and resilience against nearly overwhelming odds, the 1st Canadian Division forged a reputation as a stubborn and unyielding fighting force. But that reputation came with a price. By the time they were relieved by British and French forces, the Canadians had suffered over 6,000 casualties and lost nearly 50% of their fighting strength in the front lines. 6,000 in just four days. The savagery of the battle had a profound effect on everyone who took part including Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, a Canadian poet, physician, artist, and soldier. As a medical officer and major of the 1st Brigade CFA, he tended the wounded from a tiny bunker on the Isser Canal, just north of the village of Ypres. His experience, coupled with the loss of a close friend in the battle, inspired him to write In Flanders Fields, one of Canada's best-known literary works. The battle marked another momentous first, the first time the Germans would use poison gas, chlorine gas to be precise, a toxic vapor that would burn the eyes, nose, and throat, and flood the lungs with acid, suffocating men where they stood. 
It was a weapon that was as horrifying, enraging, and shocking as it was deadly, both to those in the trench and to the people at home who read about the devastation in the following days. But there was still more shocking news to come. On May 7th, a German U-boat torpedoed the RMS Lusitania, a ship carrying thousands of civilians from Europe, Russia, Persia, Canada, and America. The incident killed nearly 1,200 passengers and crew, and outraged the public, including those in America who had remained, until then, mostly neutral about the war. Then, on May 12th, the British Home Office released the Committee on Alleged German Outrages, better known as the Bryce Report, a damning, sensationalist, and at times dubious report of German war crimes. The document, now considered by many to be a prime example of propaganda and psychological warfare, helped sway Allied and neutral opinions even further, and did much to associate the actions of the German army with the term atrocity. It was during this time, amongst growing anger and anti-German sentiment, that stories of a battlefield crucifixion first appeared. The earliest news article I could find is from May 5th, 1915. That morning, the banner headline of the Calgary Daily Herald declared, Canadian soldiers are mad with rage when they find a comrade crucified. The subhead provides a few more details. Quote, London, May 5th. The Morning Post states, a lieutenant colonel, writing April 29, says the Canadians have done splendidly. They are mad with rage because they say they found one of their own men crucified. This is not mere camp gossip, as a general vouches for the fact. End quote. The same article appears on the same day in at least two other Canadian papers, though with less emphasis, the Victoria Daily Times and the Vancouver Daily World. The Morning Post, referenced by these articles, was a conservative daily British tabloid that didn't have the best reputation for providing accurate, in-depth, and objective news. And, true to its form, this terribly brief dispatch leaves a lot to be desired. The officer who apparently wrote the Morning Post is never named, and it's not mentioned where, how, or by whom the crucified soldier was discovered. The author seems almost defensive, anticipating the reader's skepticism by immediately denying the notion that this might be mere gossip, and reassuring us with a fallacy, an argument from authority, telling us that another anonymous individual, a general in fact, vouches for the story's authenticity. Though that last bit is meant to help convince us, it actually creates more doubt when you consider that no general would have been there on the battlefield, let alone seen with his own eyes the terrible sight. However, despite the questionable nature of the article, it seemed to contain at least one element of truth. The story of the crucified Canadian had tempers running high. Part 3. Sorry, Not Sorry Today, Canadians have a reputation for being relatively quiet, accommodating, and polite, sometimes even passive. The word sorry has become humorously intertwined with Canadian identity, the joke being that we're so friendly, so altruistic, that an apology has become a sort of cultural catchphrase. So, for many, it's somewhat surprising to learn that Canada's Great War soldiers were known for their ruthlessness and brutality. British war correspondent Philip Gibbs once wrote, The Canadians had a grim way of fighting. He detailed how Canadian soldiers would form volunteer raiding parties, 
blacken their faces, and stealthily make their way across no man's land under cover of night to engage in, as he put it, fierce and scientific slaughter. Slowly, methodically, they would snip at the barbed wire with gloved hands, taking care to muffle the sound with bits of cloth. Then, after pausing for a moment to warm up with hot cocoa, I'm serious, they would leap into the German trench and do their quote-unquote butcher's work. Other countries performed night raids as well, but it has been noted that the Canadians were the most enthusiastic participants and carried on the practice long after the others had stopped. They also fought with underhanded guile. In the book Shock Troops, Canadians Fighting the Great War, author Tim Cook includes a story by Canadian Lieutenant Louis Keane. Keane recalled how he and his men would sometimes toss a tin of corned beef into an enemy trench. They would hear alarmed shuffles, followed by confused silence. Another tin was sent over, and then another, until the starving German soldiers called out in happy and excited voices, More! Give us more! Their shouts were then answered with an armful of live grenades. According to English poet Robert Graves, Canadian troops also had the worst reputation for acts of violence against prisoners. There are many stories of how the Canadians took no prisoners, sometimes by order, sometimes by choice. How they would raid an enemy position and execute any soldiers who tried to surrender. Much of the anger they carried into the battle seemed to stem either from the outrage caused by the Germans' poison gas, or from the legend of the crucified soldier. In one particularly outrageous story from December 1915, a major of the 1st Canadian Division told a Boston Globe correspondent how some of his half-starved, half-maddened comrades had murdered 23 prisoners of war, chopped them up, and scattered their remains along the road as a warning to the advancing enemy. When another member of the panel responded with disbelief that Canadian soldiers, normally gentle, good-hearted men in civilian life, could not only kill prisoners, but also mutilate their bodies, the Major replied, You have never seen a friend who had been crucified. It seems that Canada's anger was so great that even the dead were not spared. William Cook, an American who volunteered in the Canadian forces, recalled a time when he and his fellow soldiers were searching enemy corpses for quote-unquote souvenirs. His friend discovered a beautiful signet ring, barely exposed on the bloated left hand of a fallen German soldier. He tried to take the ring, but it wouldn't budge, so he moved on. But one of their Canadian comrades wasn't so discerning, and hacked off the finger with his bayonet. Cook was surprised by this desecration, and asked the Canadian if he thought what he did was right. The soldier snarled and said yes, he did it right, and proceeded to tell the story of the crucified Canadian. Day by day, it seemed, the story spread through the Canadian and Allied forces. Soldiers wrote of it in their letters home, some merely passing along a rumor they had heard, some claiming to have actually seen the body, and some insisting that they had personally helped to remove and bury the victim. Nurses and wounded allies in military hospitals were told the legend by dying soldiers, and recounted it in their own letters and upon their return home. The more the story spread, the more it appeared in the papers, and by mid-May, many in Canada and the United Kingdom had been exposed to at least one tale about a crucified Canadian. But it was unclear which tale, if any, they should believe. Part 4. Avenge Them There are a number of versions of the crucified Canadian. 
One of the earliest, and perhaps best known, is the story I told you earlier. According to legend, a Canadian sergeant was crucified to a barn door somewhere near the Belgian village of St. Julian. A bayonet was thrust through each extremity, with a fifth blade piercing his throat. His body was riddled with bullets and slashes from enemy bayonets, with some storytellers adding that the cuts were in the shape of small crosses to make the act even more sacrilegious. It's said that the crucifixion occurred behind enemy lines, and it was unclear if the grisly find was evidence of the torture and murder of a prisoner of war, or simply the desecration of a soldier's remains. The story was often told with slight variations. Instead of a barn door, the soldier was nailed to a wooden post, or wooden boards, or a wall of a wooden structure. Perhaps not in St. Julian, but somewhere close by. The number of bayonets ranged from 4 to 17. Another story tells of a soldier lashed to a tree by his arms and legs, as if crucified, and pierced 60 times by enemy blades. By May 11th, all of these stories had found their way into Canadian and British newspapers. Some readers assumed that they were differing reports on one event, while others believed that these stories were evidence of multiple crucifixions. On May 12th, at a meeting in the United Kingdom's House of Commons, British Member of Parliament Robert Houston asked Harold Tennant, the Under Secretary of State for War, whether he had, quote, any information regarding the crucifixion of three Canadian soldiers, recently captured by the Germans, who nailed them with bayonets to the side of a wooden structure, end quote. Tennant replied that no eyewitness reports had been received, but inquiries would be made. While the Undersecretary made his inquiries, the stories kept coming. In one account, two Canadian soldiers had been crucified by the Germans in full view of their comrades across no man's land. In another, a total of six men had been found pinned to the walls of a barn. The following week, Houston was at it again, asking whether the Undersecretary had any evidence that, quote, during the recent fighting, when the Canadians were temporarily driven back, they were compelled to leave about 40 of their wounded comrades in a barn, and that, on recapturing their position, found the Germans had bayoneted all the wounded, with the exception of a sergeant, and that the Germans had removed the figure of Christ from the large village crucifix and fastened the sergeant while alive to the cross, and whether he is aware that the crucifixion of our soldiers is becoming a practice of the Germans." End quote. The House was assured that no official information had been received and that the claims of such atrocities were still being investigated. Meanwhile, Canada was conducting its own investigations. At first, Colonel Ernest Chambers, Canada's chief censor, thought the story was an American invention, a simple piece of propaganda created to boost recruitment. But as story after story came in, as more and more people, including superstar novelist Rudyard Kipling, wrote him swearing it was true, Chambers and others began seeking, quote, authenticated statements of one or more of such incidents, end quote. Their efforts would yield little results. Try as they might, they could never confirm a single first-hand account. The closest they got was always one step away. Many returned soldiers who talked about the crucified Canadian admitted, when confronted by an officer, that they had not personally seen the crucified soldier, but had heard about it from someone who did. So no details were ever confirmed, but that didn't stop the newspapers from running increasingly outrageous claims, nor did it stop propagandists from using it for their own agenda. In November 1915, during a recruiting expedition in Ottawa, 
A Corporal Thomas of the Montreal Grenadier Guards praised Canadian tenacity and aggression, declaring, quote, At the Battle of Langmark, we saw six Canadians crucified. Then the boys swore they wouldn't take a German prisoner, and they have not, end quote. In March 1916, the Saskatoon Star Phoenix published a narrative from an anonymous soldier claiming, among other things, that he had come across four crucified Canadians nailed to the doors and walls of a Belgian barn, and that he personally buried two of them. He explained that he had heard the original legend of the crucified soldier in St. Julian, but didn't believe the story until he had his own gruesome encounter with these four new victims. The article never gives his name, but it reassures us that, quote, the facts are vouched for by the conviction of every Canadian in France, end quote. The idea of four victims also came up at a recruiting demonstration in Montreal's Dominion Square, now Dorchester Square, a few months later. There, a Staff Sergeant James William Smith told how a total of four Canadians had been crucified up to that point, two near Langmark, and two at a house between La Brassie and Neuve-Chapelle between March and April of 1915. All I ask tonight, he implored the crowd, is four men to replace the Canadians nailed to that barn door. Intriguingly, he later claimed that he had photographs taken of each victim and had them with him in Montreal. He promised that, with the censor's permission, they would soon be shown, and that one of the victims would be identified. Two years later, in February 1918, the possibility of photographic evidence would again be mentioned this time in a harrowing tale told by Private Harold R. Pete in a section from his memoirs published in the Winnipeg Tribune. He wrote how, on the night of April 22, 1915, quote, The Germans caught and crucified three of our Canadian sergeants. I did not see them crucify the men, although I saw one of the dead bodies after. I was told that one of the sergeants was still alive when taken down, and before he died, he gasped out to his saviors that when the Germans were raising him to be crucified, they muttered savagely in perfect English, If we did not frighten you before, this time we will. I know a sergeant in Edmonton, Alberta, he continued, who has in his possession today the actual photographs of the crucified men taken before the dead bodies were recovered from the barnside. Despite these assurances, no photographs have ever been found. But that fact didn't keep artists from creating their own interpretations. Images of the crucified Canadian appeared in American film, on posters, and in fundraising advertisements in the Canadian press. In May of 1918, for example, the Ottawa Rotary Club ran an ad titled Savage Warfare. It featured illustrations of Attila the Hun murdering innocent people, the execution of British nurse Edith Cavill, and the crucifixion of a Canadian soldier. On November 2nd, nine days before Armistice, a full-page illustrated advertisement appeared in the Calgary Herald, sponsored by 44 of the city's lawyers. It showed a battered and broken soldier crucified to a barn door before a group of jeering, bloodthirsty Germans. Two words appeared in bold lettering below the soldier's ragged boots. Avenge them. The imagery found its way into the fine arts as well. Perhaps the earliest work is The Martyr, a 1915 charcoal sketch by acclaimed Russian and French artist D. O. Widhopf, which depicts a Canadian infantryman nailed to a wooden cross. The man writhes in agony as a long-haired figure, interpreted as either Christ or the soldier's mother, attempts to comfort him. 
a single word is written at the bottom of the image. Frère, French for brother, and an expression of solidarity and kinship. The last depiction, created during wartime, debuted in January 1919 as part of the Canadian War Memorials Exhibition in London, England, and it would quickly prove to be controversial. Part 5. An Invented Outrage Canada's Golgotha, named for the area where Christ is said to have been crucified, is a bronze sculpture by British artist Francis Derwent Wood. Measuring roughly three feet high by two feet wide, it depicts a scene which, by 1919, had become all too iconic. A sagging corpse of a Canadian soldier is crucified to a barn door. His feet, skewered together by a single nail, rest on the drawbar that holds the doors in place. Five German soldiers stand below him, pointing, jeering, and admiring their work. Even before it was revealed to curious artgoers on Piccadilly, the sculpture had gained a reputation. One press correspondent declared it a wonderfully powerful piece of work. Another called it a damning indictment of the nation whose soldiers crucified a Canadian soldier and mocked his long, drawn-out agonies. The German Undersecretary of State of Foreign Affairs had different words for it, an invented outrage. The Entente powers had convened at Versailles, just outside of Paris, to discuss the peace terms for Germany and her allies. The defeated Central Powers had no say in the outcome and could only wait and hope for leniency. Meanwhile, across the Channel in London, Wood's sculpture was on display as part of the Canadian War Memorials Exhibition, and it was singled out as one of the most powerful, striking, and compelling works of art. Declared by one art critic to be, quote, the most important artistic event that has happened in England for many a year, end quote, the exhibition at the galleries of the Royal Academy was opened by Canada's Prime Minister, Sir Robert Borden, and attended by political leaders, nobility, dignitaries, art critics, and influential members of London's elite. It was the brainchild of Canadian-born newspaper mogul and backstage politician Max Aitken, otherwise known as Lord Beaverbrook. A supporter of Canada's involvement in the Great War, Beaverbrook had established the Canadian War Memorials Fund, and in the course of just two years, had commissioned over 100 of Canada's and Britain's most important artists and asked them to document the conflict from a Canadian perspective. The result was over 400 paintings, photos, sketches, and sculptures by almost every prominent British and Canadian artist at the time. As the fund's name suggests, the ultimate goal was to create, somewhere in Ottawa, the ultimate memorial, or as art critic, fund advisor, and honorary secretary Paul G. Conady put it, a, quote, modern pantheon, end quote, that would showcase the nation's war art alongside roles of fame, valor, and distinction. It would be a shrine, a, quote, unquote, mecca for Canadian pilgrims that would, quote, commemorate national victory, complete and final, in which Canada has so proudly shared, end quote. The project was hailed as an outstanding achievement and celebrated for its goal of chronologically and systematically recording every phase of Canadian operations, serving as an important and timeless record for future generations. But therein lies the problem. As we've learned, atrocity stories like the crucified soldier were commonplace during the war. Newspapers spread them, recruiting officers opined on them, citizens came to their own conclusions, some were skeptical, some were staunch believers. But now, the war was over, the story had never been proven one way or the other, and it was time to talk facts. 
The whole point of the Canadian War Memorials Fund was to record the Canadian experience in a war where Canada came into its own as a nation, and the exhibition was its officially sanctioned denouement. Villages and battlefields where Canadian soldiers had marched, fought, and died were appropriate subjects for such an endeavor, as were more symbolic images such as flags, graves, and monuments. But this was a depiction of an alleged atrocity that many considered to be pure propaganda, and its representation as a factual Canadian experience in London and in newspapers around the world could only hinder Germany's attempts to improve its international image. So they complained, and demanded that Canada admit the story was unproven. As Maria Tippett summarized in her excellent book on the CWMF, Art at the Service of War, quote, Wood sculpture was a tool of war. The war was now over, and the unverifiable accusations made by the bronze must stop, end quote. The Canadians were torn. This country of just 8 million people had lost over 60,000 soldiers, a huge number for such a low population. They proved themselves time and again at places like Ypres, the Somme, Vimy Ridge, and Passchendaele. They had argued for and won a place at the peace conference, and thus recognition as a nation separate from Britain. Now, the losers of the war were calling them liars and demanding an investigation. Worst of all, the demand wasn't wholly unwarranted. Sir Arthur Currie, the commander of the Canadian Corps, had investigated the incident years earlier and concluded that any story of a crucified Canadian was completely untrue. Others were similarly doubtful. But some, like Sir Edward Kemp, the Canadian Minister of Overseas Military Forces, wasn't so sure. He knew about all those letters that Canadian soldiers had written about the atrocity. The Prime Minister himself had told Kemp about a letter that the Minister of the Interior had seen, which was, quote, from a very reliable soldier in a Manitoba regiment, end quote. Kemp decided to investigate further. By April, he had two sworn statements. One was from Leonard Vivian, a former British soldier, bandsman, and stretcher-bearer with the 3rd Middlesex Regiment. The other was William H. Metcalf, a Canadian corporal of the 16th Battalion and recipient of both the Military Medal and the Victoria Cross. The two accounts proved quite similar. Both had come across the body of a crucified soldier on or around April 23, 1915. Both said that the soldier was pinned to a barn door with bayonets through his hands. Both noted that his head was slumped forward. Both were near the village of St. Julian. The exact locations given in the testimonies were about two miles apart, but that inconsistency didn't seem to phase the politicians. These were, after all, sworn eyewitness testimonies, won by a highly decorated Canadian soldier. An official reply was finally sent to the British Colonial Office, who forwarded it to the Foreign Office, who then sent it along to the Swiss Foreign Minister, who, in their role as mediator, gave it to officials in Berlin. All of this convoluted channeling and bureaucracy caused massive delays, and by the time the Germans received the explanation, the London exhibition was long over. But Germany still wanted answers. They had reviewed the two soldiers' testimonies and could prove that their forces were nowhere near either of the locations where the supposed atrocity took place. This revelation didn't really matter, however. The point had been made. When the exhibition opened in New York City later that year, Canada's Golgotha was not on display. Years passed. The shrine that was supposed to house the Canadian War Memorial Exhibition was never built. Public opinion on war and nationalism soured. 
Instead of a grand, national, pilgrimage-worthy pantheon that Conaty had envisioned, the people of Canada chose to build individual community memorials instead. The art collection was broken up, the story forgotten. Finally, in 1930, the Canadian government had the official photos of Canada's Golgotha withdrawn from reproduction, and the sculpture banished to permanent storage so that, quote, the government may be protected against the embarrassment of its being exhibited or photographed at any future time, end quote. For decades, the sculpture would sit ignored, a relic of another time. Even in 1989, 70 years after it was first shown in London, a request to exhibit a photograph of the artwork was denied. Finally, in the 1990s, the government decided that museum professionals, not politicians, would be better custodians. At the time of this recording, Canada's Golgotha is housed at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. It occasionally goes on display and is lent out to other museums, often with a small note to inform the viewer that, quote, the crucifixion remains unproven, end quote. Part 6. Memory and Meaning So, is the story true? Was a Canadian soldier crucified during the Great War? Well, most experts say no, or more diplomatically, almost certainly no. There are too many discrepancies, too many loose ends. Its harshest critics point to the date that the story was first made public. Isn't it convenient, they say, that stories of a crucified soldier appeared just after the sinking of the Lusitania? Except they're wrong. Many critics wrongly claim that the story first appeared on May 10th, 1915, when in actuality it appeared on May 5th, if not earlier, a full two days before the Lusitania disaster. So it's clear that some critics might not have been the most thorough in their research. They just relied on others who came before them and trusted their data. They also get wrapped up in how the story is so perfect for propaganda, and how that fact suggests it was likely invented and almost certainly promoted by officials. And while it's true that the story was used by anti-German and pro-war propaganda, it was also used by pacifists and anti-war groups as a powerful argument why a person should not go to war. In fact, Canada's chief censor, Colonel Ernest Chambers, thought the story should be soft-pedaled or not actively promoted, as he believed it could too easily be used by others with differing agendas. And he was right. The Nazis later used it as, quote, an example of the horror of British propaganda lies, end quote. The legend also has its believers. In 2002, British journalist and historian Ian Overton created an outstanding documentary on the subject for UK Channel 4's Secret History series. His investigations led him to a name for the crucified Canadian, Sergeant Harry Band of the 48th Canadian Highlanders. Band's descendants, then living in Kelowna, British Columbia, said that letters from his fellow soldiers confirmed that he was indeed the crucified Canadian of legend. Additionally, Overton has said that he believes the story is true, and the evidence seems to correspond with the testimonies given by Vivian and Metcalf. But while the documentary is very compelling, problems still remain. There's one other interesting twist to the story that has often gone unmentioned. Even after Canada's Golgotha was removed from exhibition, Canada continued its investigations in the fall of 1919. The search yielded more hearsay and conflicting reports, but one testimony brought a new and unexpected element to the story. 
According to Major G.C. Carvel, formerly of the famous Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, a Canadian infantryman was hung by wires, as if crucified, from the loft of a barn during the Second Battle of Ypres. The act was committed not by German soldiers, but by Belgian farmers, and the crucifixion was, quote, not one in fact. He had been tied up by wire attached to his wrists and feet, while a strand which held his head in position against the wall accounted for his semi-strangulation, end quote. This testimony works well with the German claim that their soldiers were never in the area. In fact, Carvel confirms that the German forces were over 11,000 yards away. His report is also reminiscent of claims found in a document known as the White Book. Published in 1916, it was the Germans' response to the Bryce Report, their own record of atrocities they said were committed by Belgian civilians on German soldiers. It includes dubious details of how German soldiers were tortured, mutilated, burned alive, and crucified. Aside from Carvel's testimony, no further evidence of this event has ever been found. Today, the story of the crucified Canadian is mostly forgotten, and it's unlikely that the mystery will ever be fully resolved. But perhaps that doesn't really matter. In his account of life on the Western Front, author Arnold Bennett describes what he calls the most majestic and striking ruin at the front, the shattered cathedral in the French city of Arras, just north of Paris. The religious building had been devastated by German shelling, and Bennett notes how its pale simplicity suited its martyrdom, and admires how, though the structure suffered terrible wounds, they did not appreciably impair its form. Of the German commanders who ordered the shelling, he writes, quote, they have accomplished nothing more austerely picturesque, more religiously impressive, more idiotically sacrilegious, more exquisitely futile than their achievement here. End quote. Whether you consider the story of the crucified Canadian to be a factual account or merely a myth of the trenches, it is nothing less than a personification of this destruction. There is an austerity, notions of the religious and sacrilegious, a sense of futility and a terrible beauty that can be found in its depictions. The bayonet wounds, the stigmata, the broken body can be compared to the shattered windows, scarred rubble, and crumbling walls of the Arras Cathedral, or indeed any other structure ravaged by war. Though the veracity of the crucified Canadian might never be determined, the legend carries a truth of its own. The story moved through the trenches by way of battle-weary soldiers, it was shared in staggered breaths by the wounded and dying in military hospitals, and in letters written by candlelight, sent to loved ones waiting at home. It's an expression of the fear and anger that was felt by those on the front line, a reflection of the brutality and futility of a war fought over a few hundred meters of scarred earth, and, with its parallels to Christ, a symbol of one man's sacrifice. But while religion tells us that Christ died for the world's sins, we're left questioning the purpose and meaning behind this young sergeant's terrible fate, and, by extension, the purpose and meaning of the deaths of more than 20 million people. It's that theme of sacrifice that is perhaps the most disquieting thing about the legend and the artwork it inspired. Another artist on display at the Canadian War Memorial Exhibition was the celebrated painter and future founding member of Canada's famed Group of Seven, Frederick Varley. Unlike Derwent Wood, the British sculptor of Canada's Golgotha, Varley had been to the front, and though he was initially excited to travel and serve as a war artist, 
he was profoundly affected by what he saw. In one letter, dated May 1919, to his wife Maud, he wrote, quote, To see the land half-cultivated and people coming back to where their homes were is too much for my makeup. You'll never know, dear, anything of what it means. I'm going to paint a picture of it, but heavens, it can't say a thousandth part of a story. We'd be healthier to forget, and that we never can. We are forever tainted with its abortiveness and its cruel drama, and for the life of me, I don't know how that can help progression. End quote. Among Varley's war paintings, two make prominent use of the cross. The first is titled, Someday the People Will Return. It depicts a pile of rubble, splintered wood, crumbling stone, jutting angles, and a toppled crucifix beneath a black and brooding sky. In the second painting, a cart filled with corpses sits upended in a field of sickly mud and yellow pools of water. A man stands framed against a rain-streaked sky. Before him, two rows of little white crosses, grave markers of the fallen, are the only uninterrupted strokes in a landscape of obscured forms, heaped masses, and muddy smears. To me, one message comes through very clearly in these paintings. Every soldier who left their home, many never to return. Every civilian who died or lived to see their homes burned or their loved ones displaced or slaughtered had made a sacrifice. The story of the crucified soldier speaks to that sacrifice as well. But as the machinery of war pushes on, the smoke clears, and the people return, we're left wondering at the purpose of the sacrifice, wondering the very question that serves as the title of that second painting. For what? I want to leave you with one more quote from Frederick Varley, taken from another letter he wrote to his wife while serving as a war artist on the Western Front. You in Canada cannot realize at all what war is like. You must see it and live it. You must see the barren deserts war has made of once fertile country, seen the turned up graves, seen the dead on the field, freakishly mutilated, headless, legless, stomachless, a perfect body and a passive face and a broken empty skull. Seen your own countrymen, unidentified, thrown into a cart, their coats over them, boys digging a grave in a land of yellow, slimy mud and green pools of water under a weeping sky. You must have heard the screeching shells and have the shrapnel fall all around you, whistling by you, seen the results of it, seen scores of horses, bits of horses, lying around in the open, in the streets, and soldiers marching by these scenes as if they never knew of their presence. Until you have lived this, you cannot know. Even if the story of the crucified Canadian has no basis in fact, if it was entirely fabricated, a powerful piece of propaganda created to influence the public and call more men to war, it came from that surreal wasteland that Varley describes, where enormous viciousness and suffering were the products of one of the deadliest conflicts in history, where destruction and ruin were the muses of the artists who were asked to look upon and record a war to end all wars. It was a place where news of legendary atrocities so shocking to the public back home seemed perfectly plausible to the men in the trenches who had seen with stinging eyes the savage results of the conflict's first major act of modern chemical warfare. We may never know all the facts about the crucified Canadian, but we've always known the truth it conveys. That war is a terrible reality, 
that humanity is capable of breathtaking cruelty, and that sacrifice does not always carry with it a promise of grace. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it, and remember that legends often carry with them a powerful truth. If you'd like to learn more about Canada's role in World War I, I highly recommend the well-researched podcast, Canada's Great War. Hosted by Craig Baird, the historian behind another podcast, Canadian History X, each episode provides a brief but in-depth summary of its topic. The episode titled The Battle of Saint-Julien will give you further insight into the events and agonies that gave rise to the stories of the crucified Canadian. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Braden Alexander. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.